Hello, you're watching Global Investor on Business Day TV. I'm Simon Brown, Drickus Crombink from Capicraft, who joins me this evening to guide us through all the latest news on global markets. And later in the show, we'll be joined by Radomir Vermark from Fairtree Capital to discuss their global smart beta fund. All that coming your way shortly. First, though, a quick look at what's been making headlines. In company news, world's biggest mining company, Glencore's shares tumbled the most in two years following a subpoena by U.S. authorities for alleged money laundering and corruption in Nigeria, the DRC, and Venezuela from 2007 to date. News of the subpoena wrapped $6.8 billion off the company's market value, way more than the largest penalty ever imposed by U.S. authorities under their Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. U.S. jobs growth increased more than expected in June, Non-farm payrolls rose by 213,000 against an expected gain of 195,000. The growth, however, was not enough to keep the unemployment rate from rising to 4% from 3.8%, but is it a sign of confidence in the economy despite the start of a bruising trade war with China? And those U.S. tariffs on $34 billion in Chinese imports have taken effect, with Beijing vowing to retaliate. This as the six months of wrangling over trade tariffs wiped out about a fifth of China's stock market value and caused its currency to fall sharply. He has more on that. The first shots were fired in what's slipping into a trade war between the United States and China on Friday. Just past midnight East Coast time, Washington launched tariffs on $34 billion of Chinese imports as a deadline for negotiations passed. China said it was forced to retaliate, meaning an equal amount of goods from the U.S. would also face tariffs. Beijing officials said Friday the U.S. trade actions were typical bullying. Shares in Chinese markets took a beating in the run-up to the deadline and slipped further when it passed, pulling down Asian markets. As for the wider impact, analysts expect this first round of tariffs won't do major immediate damage, but they're afraid a drawn-out battle could disrupt the global economy. In the countdown to midnight, Chinese state media had slammed President Donald Trump, accusing the White House of acting like, quote, a gang of hoodlums trying to shake down other countries, especially China. That came after Trump warned that in the end, the U.S. could target over $500 billion worth of Chinese goods. That's roughly the amount in total that the U.S. imported from China last year. And business sources in Washington and Beijing told Reuters there had been little sign of last-minute talks between the two sides to find any kind of solution to the trade dispute. So what's on the U.S. list of targets? U.S. Customs and Border Protection will collect 25% duties on a wide range of items from China. Cars, computer disk drives, and parts of everything from valves to printers. What's out for this round at least? Consumer goods like cell phones and footwear. China's response list includes soybeans, a massive moneymaker for U.S. farmers, as well as sorghum and cotton. Those targets are all lifeline crops for red states like Iowa and Texas that helped vault Trump into office during the 2016 elections. Drickus Crombrink from Capicraft joins us now. Drickus, evening. Thanks for joining us on the desk. I want to talk China. Let's first kick off with, with those tariff wars. Started midnight uh, uh, Friday, so we're only three days. And 34 billion U.S. dollars. My sense is the market, that's probably not a problem if it stays at 34 billion. If it starts to get bigger, we start to see lots of retaliation. It can get ugly and potentially badly ugly. Well, the sense is yes, because the last real trade wars that we have had was in, in the 1930s. Yeah, and, and, and that was really bad, but that obviously weren't the only reason why the Great Depression 
um, happened. Firstly and secondly, why it lasted longer than than you know the typical recession. So, uh, a lot of uh, facts and uh, comparisons being thrown around with previous trade wars. Um, I'm not sure a lot of them are still relevant because back then a lot of goods still crossed borders. Now, uh, you know, it's it's more service-based economies um, and a lot of it's intellectual property and that's why the trade war is actually happening. Yeah. But we're seeing a lot of the trade war rhetoric and the actual uh, tariffs now being um, uh, put on goods, you know, crossing the border to China and, and to and fro. But, uh, you know, act, the actual thing why this trade war has been started is because of intellectual property infringements from China. You, you talk about the 30s, I agree, not much comparison. Markets known about this, we've known it's been yeah. coming, the fact that it's now happened, even the, even the deadline of Friday has been out there for some time at all. Are, are, you, are you doing anything particular with the portfolio with regard to this? No. Or your bigger picture? Not, not at the moment. I'm, I'm not seeing that this thing escalates beyond control. This is not the base case, I, I think, for most, for, for most people. But what has happened, if you take a few steps back a few decades. Mm -hmm. The last three decades has been unprecedented um, in, in perhaps in human history with regards to the opening up of borders. Not only um, from a goods and services flow perspective, but especially the last 30 years with respect to, to uh, capital flows and labor. So I don't expect those windfalls that the global economy has, has had and multinational corporations has had, the ease that they've that they've had in opening up of borders, doing business basically anywhere. Now Microsoft does business in almost 200 countries. Um, that is, that windfall they have won't be there over the next 30 years. Um, I, I see the, the globalization basically stagnating from here. And um, longer term, you have to be looking elsewhere, and just, you know, not just looking at the big multinationals anymore that has uh, quite easily racked up decent returns over the last three decades. So you have to look elsewhere um, and that generally means um, uh, looking at mononationals. You mentioned this last week, it was, we were on Stockwatch, you were talking off, to, off, off air when you came off mm. the show about the money. So, so companies that are dominant in a, in a country, maybe yeah. a territory, but, but in, in, a, yeah. in a country, I think back to what SAB Miller was in South Africa before it expanded. Uh, absolutely. So um, generally when, when there's high inflation trade wars, when there's something that is inhibiting uh, global growth. Uh, normally, there's certain certain sectors that do well. Firstly, st structural stories will still do well, and if you are a market leader and you're far above the rest, a 20% tariff is not going to you know um, you're not going to start up the competition. So you have to look for still there's still certain fundamentals that still rule. You know that that's timeless and won't change. But thirdly, um, if you go for mononationals. Generally, those guys dominate their the local or their yeah. the, you know, the niche market, and um, they've got much more pricing power, um, and they've got, normally they've got a competitive advantage where they operate. So, um, yeah, and, and uh, another thing is you can, you can tailor the risk of your portfolio towards certain countries with less political, political risk uh, than others. Um, That's a good point. Uh, you, you buy Apple, you buy in the world. Yeah, you, you're absolutely. not buying America. I want to go stay with China. We, we were chatting uh, again you, a couple of, and you were talking around some concerns you've got around China. I know that was it two or three weeks ago they released the capital requirements for the banks, which either says to me that the banks are so in such rude health that they need to hold less capital. Uh, truthfully, that's the unlikely scenario, mm -hmm. or that they basically trying to pump some liquidity into into the Chinese economy, which is mm. which is frankly not a good picture. Well, firstly, I think the, the Chinese banks are in a much, much better condition than than they were three years ago, 2015, when, when they had a real liquidity crunch and when, you know, the whole commodity block mm -hmm. went down the drain. And uh, that, that was a property, proper liquidity 
uh, crunch and was arrested by huge um, cuts in the reserve requirement ratios that, you know, similar to what we've seen two weeks ago, but, you know, that we had a few back in 2015. We had about a trillion dollars being thrown at the market in various forms back then, and that, you know, that generally um, saved the Chinese economy um, for all intents and purposes. The banking sector looks better now because in the last year or so they've clamped down on on the Chinese banks, especially on the shadow banking system, mm -hmm. because there's a lot of bad loans in the system, and they've tried to to drain that to a large large extent. But with that, you know, because the remember the yuan is is uh, pegged to the dollar, and with the dollar strength that we've seen, you uh, you basically and they they're pegged to a large degree to the dollar. Um, they have to put up interest rates in step with the dollar, otherwise it's it gets That's difficult. To balance the, you know, balance yeah. their monetary system, and um, with that, you know, they've really um, turned down the taps on the banks, uh, together with the the bad loans that they've tried to get out the system. And what what we've seen is is that the 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 fall in the Shanghai stock market was actually preceded by, you know, the escalation of the trade wars. So not everything is about the trade wars. The trade wars might be another few straws on the back of the camel. You know that that makes the the Chinese camel a bit more wobbly. So I think there's already a bit of a liquidity squeeze there. And another thing that they did that you won't see reported a lot is that they that they lowered the, the credit uh, requirement, the credit quality requirement for the banks to hold as collateral when they um, borrow funds from the central bank. So that that's quite alarming. Okay, let's move to the UK, which is looking. Uh, David uh, Davies resigned. He was uh, the Brexit secretary, followed shortly thereafter by Boris Johnson, who was foreign secretary. Um, some other uh, 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 cabinet minister also going. Looking messy with nine months until they've got to have something. Um, this is not looking good from a political perspective. Perhaps the economic we can touch on, but politically, this mm. is looking messy for the yeah. UK. Uh, politically, I think the Conservative Party has been lo losing. Um, some, some, you know, the, the, the trends in the polls have definitely been going south for them. Um, and the number one reason is that the general dissatisfaction with the way the Brexit deal has been going, um, negotiations has been going, no deal. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think, you know, conservatives are more and more inclined. They were, well, I think they got more and more irritated with uh, Theresa May. And Friday, I think, was, uh, was the last straw for a lot of them. So, um, you know, Boris Johnson just resigned a few mm -hmm. hours ago. Um, and I think that that pretty much, uh, I think, gives the needed momentum for a lot of the other Conservative Party uh, members of Parliament. They only need 15% to uh, issue a vote of no confidence. And I don't think Theresa May will survive the week. Yeah, so it should be going perhaps the end of the week. Oddly enough, both the FTSE 100 it was up around a percent. The FTSE 250 as well, which I thought would perhaps suffer a little bit more, up uh, around just under one percent as well. From an economic perspective, I mean, we can debate Brexit, good, mm. bad, or ugly. The truth of the matter is, the UK is going to be around for a lot longer than any of us or the, mm. or the viewers out there, um, and Brexit might might shave some growth off. Maybe that you know, they, 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 you know, maybe there's some bad stuff from Brexit. Yeah. But there's still quality companies there, and the market is still investing in them. And again, you know, perhaps in the UK you don't want some mononationals; you want some of the multinationals. Yeah, you would have wanted some mononationals because the pound weakened, you know, from sure. about 145 to the euro to about 115 just um, um, earlier today. So you know that weakening in the pound certainly helps the mononationals. We own a few ourselves, um, quality companies. Um, but the thing is, economically, you need confidence and. 
the, the drawn-out Brexit negotiations does nothing for confidence. Um, even uh, a hard Brexit is better than the Brexit plan that's on the table at the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, put on top of that another nine months of uncertainty. Will the UK not come forth with more stringent requirements? Will Labour not make it more difficult for the Conservatives to push this through? You know, there's a lot of, uh, you need a unified government to take this and you need a bit of a backbone to take this to, to the Europeans and say, listen, this is what we want if you don't get it. We're out the back door and it's, you know, we, we're willing to take a hard Brexit. You can't win an argument or you can't win a deal if you're not willing to walk away you from it. You've got to take the other half. If you're not prepared to take the other side, then you ain't got negotiating power. Before we go to a break, World Bank CEO worried about soaring global debt in face of higher interest rates. I'm assuming that this is a concern that's been growing, but this is not a surprise to anyone. We've certainly got debt out there because of low yeah. rates. Those higher rates is going to put some squeeze. So yeah, financing costs as percentage of GDP is still relatively low because of the low interest rates. Um, this changes, and it normally changes without warning. Um, it's like the saying around bankruptcy is, you, know, you ask me, <laughs> how did you go bankrupt? And I say, well, first gradually, then suddenly. Then suddenly. So, you know, it's something to the tune of that. Um, it ties in with the China story. Um, most of China's debt is on, on corporate balance sheet and se- semi-state-owned entities. The central government actually has very little debt, but they guarantee most of the, the other debt to a certain extent. Um, so their debt is up to almost 300% of GDP if you count everything. So that, that's a lot. You know, that's, and the um, financing cost is a bit more than the Americans, so they actually have more debt than, than the US has at the moment as a percentage of GDP. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, uh, this, this is a, uh, what we might see as certain, certain areas of the world where you don't get growth, or s- and a bit of inflation to counter that, y- or, and, and a bit of positive demographics. You know, it's that Central Europe we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You might see a Jap- Japanification of the economy, basically, uh, and that's the same thing that happened to ch- to, uh, to uh, Japan in the mid '90s. You know, after that, the spectacular growth, too much debt, um, and uh, yeah, uh, zombie banks. Same as Europe, still a lot of zombie banks out there, and I think China's trying to trying to not to walk that same route by, by cleaning out their banks. We'll leave it there for now. We'll go for a short break. When we come back, we'll take a look at the Fairtree Global Smart Beta Fund with Radomir for Mark. Stay tuned. Welcome back. You're watching Global Investor. Still with me in studio. Trickers Crombrink from Capicraft joining us on the line to discuss the Fairtree Global Smart Beta Fund. Mark Redner, evening, thanks for joining us. You talk around a, a, a multi-factor approach. You list five of them, quality, value, momentum, volatility, uh, and investment factor. I'm wondering how you, you piece them together. Are you looking at them individually? Is it a sort of a scorecard that you run on, on each of the stocks that you're potentially investing on? Hey, well, good evening, uh, Drikas. Good evening, Simon. Uh, thank you for having me on the show. Um, Simon, I think firstly it's, it's important to explain what smart beta is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and before we can do that, I think we have to explain what beta is. Now, beta is in essence any strategy, investment strategy, that can be written down. Now, the first investment strategy that was written down was uh, the traditional capital asset pricing model. Uh, where we weight stocks by the market cap and the resulting portfolios are, for example, portfolios such as the top 40 in South Africa or the S&P 500 in the U.S. Now, these are, of course, the market, uh, is, is what these, these portfolios are known as. 
Uh, on the other side of the spectrum, we have got traditional active managers uh, that make use of their intellect and various sources of information to construct portfolios weighted by their conviction. Now, what Smart Data is, is it sits in the middle between traditional passive and traditional active in the sense that it uses the same information that active managers use. So it looks at the financial statements, the balance sheet, the cash flow statements, um, and it then uses that information to construct a portfolio using rules, i.e. it can be written down. Um, and the result of that is a portfolio that is well diversified of, and, and consists of stocks with numerous good characteristics that we know drive returns over the long term. Um, and then it also incorporates risk management. So risk management uh, in, on the access side is that it is devoid of emotion. So because it is purely systematic and rules-based, there, there is no emotion involved. And it improves on risk management from the passive side because it um, manages risks, i.e. single stock risk, um, and it, it, it attempts to build well-diversified portfolios. Now, an example of a characteristic or a factor or a beta um, that, that uh, we use when constructing these portfolios is, for example, the, the P-E ratio. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll touch on the factors that we use in our portfolio shortly, but I think as an example of what a smart beta portfolio is, Perhaps um, a simple, let, let's build a simple smart beta portfolio by ourselves. Let's say we take the stocks in the top 40, and at the beginning of every month, we rank the stocks by its P-E ratio, and we buy the 20 cheapest stocks, equally weighted. That is, in essence, a very simple value smart beta fund. Now, of course, it gets more complicated and more sophisticated than that, but that is the concept behind Smart Beta, rules-based using additional information. So at Fairtree, we use five different factors, all based um, in academic, academic research. And these are, as you've mentioned, um, value, like, i.e., what is the price I'm paying for the stock? Quality, what am I getting for that price? Investment, it is a measure of the quality of management. Risk, we want companies that have low risk and momentum, companies that have got momentum behind them and with good growth. Now, there are a number of different ways in which to construct multi-factor portfolios. And what we do is we give every stock a score for each of those characteristics, and then we equally weight that to arrive at a stock or at a score for every stock. And we then pick the stocks that tick all the boxes, so to, so to speak. Rodemeyer, um, these uh, factors are great factors. I, I can uh, agree with a lot of them. We use a lot of these factors or, you know, in our investment decision-making framework. But uh, most of the factors that you use are based on publicly known quantifiable information that's available basically to the whole investment community. Um, and secondly, um, you know, a lot of other global investment houses can uh, construct a similar strategy than the one that you are running at the moment. What is your competitive, competitive advantage and what, what, what would you say is, you know, is the sustainable 
uh, quality of this fund if you know if, if a lot of, of other managers uses the same public information and they run basically the same strategy um, how will you how will you outperform the market if more and more you know investment um, investors does the same uh, that's a very good question because thank you so I think one of our competitive um, advantages is the fact that we it's a way that we construct our portfolio and our factor definitions um, so a peer value fund, such as, for example, a, a RAFI fund, would rank stocks by a single dimension, such as value, and buy the cheapest stocks. But what we say is that those stocks are typically cheap for a reason, and that is because their quality might be poor or their risk might be high. So the way that we orthogonalize and construct our factor portfolios using a minimum volatility approach gives us a completely different methodology for constructing our factor definitions. So our definition of, for example, um, momentum would include a number of different measures that enhances the factor beyond just the pure academic um, definition of momentum of, say, for example, the return over the 12 months. We use both analyst estimates, we use um, growth in the balance sheet, and we've got a very bespoke measure of, of, of each of our, our factors. And I think a second important point that I think a lot, a lot of other smart beta providers are still catching on to, it's the fact that smart beta is a tool that should be used to pick stocks and not to pick sectors and not to pick countries. So if you just rank by a, a, a factor, let's say PE, and you buy the 20 cheapest stocks without any concern for the sector constraints or the sector exposure, you could end up with a portfolio that is completely invested in, say, financial stocks. And then <laughs> a president fires a finance minister and your portfolio is decimated. So we want to control for that risk. And that is why in our portfolios we manage the risk on a benchmark relative basis regarding to sector and country risk. Uh, right, I was doing some, oddly enough, some, some reading over the weekend from a French group, and for life me can't remember the name, but they were talking about factor investing, and what they were doing is they were taking, much like you are, they had six factors and, and, and put them into one, and their logic was quite simple. They were, you know, there might be a time for momentum, and there's a time for value, and there's a time for the, the different factors, um, but timing those factors is the complexity, particularly for, for the retail client. Their argument is that if you bundle them together, you actually get a, 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 a better performance because you've always got those, those winners. And I can see, for example, your momentum since inception has been the, the outstanding, but in the last sort of period, it, it was market. Is that the expectation, that a, a group of factors, in your case five of them, will actually enhance that return above and beyond just being the smart beta, but the bundling together? Absolutely. And I think you are referring to research by Eric. That's them. Which is a business school, and I, I highly rate their research and their, and their um, the results. <clears throat> and yes, in exactly the same way as one should diversify your single stock exposure, you should diversify your factor exposure. Now, there are a number of different ways in which one can diversify your factor exposure. Um, and the one is to go out and buy, a, say, a value fund and a momentum fund and blend the two funds say 50-50. But we believe that that is a suboptimal methodology for constructing multi-factor portfolios and for diversifying your portfolio. 
And the reasoning behind that is perhaps best explained by um, an example. So let's say, in, if you go back to August of 2013, just before African Bank went into administration, um, if you had a value bucket by itself, African Bank was cheap on every metric out there. So you would have had African Bank in your value bucket, even though it wouldn't have been in any of your other buckets if you blended single-factor funds. But if you look at the information about African Bank on a stock level, it was cheap, but its quality was low, its momentum was trending down, and its risk was high. So those additional pieces of information, characteristics, factors or betas, taken into account at the stock level would have kept you out of that value trap. And that is why we believe in blending information at the stock level and not at the portfolio level. Direct us quickly before we, before we end. Uh, to, to, investing is always to a degree formulaic. They have to, it's certainly at, at the underpinning. Yeah. How much do you run formula, formulaic processes? Well, you have a general framework, a mental model or two that you run. And uh, a lot of these you know, factors that they talk about runs into that mental mo- model. You know, I like quality companies, mm-hmm. but, you know, and I like, I like a quality company that's also uh, has a decent margin of safety with regards to price and some optionality as it's got opportunity to reinvest at high margin, stuff like that. So you look at that, but still at the end of the day, most of the stuff that, you know, funds like these need to quantify, most of the, the best investment decisions are made by stuff that's not quantifiable. So you have to mix the art with the science, and this is a bit more science and a bit less art. So for me, I, I, like, I like a bit of more art into the investment process. I think that's, that's my competitive advantage. Yeah, see, I, I like a bit of science because I think my art may be not as good as yours. Maybe that's my issue. That's the show for the week. My thanks to our guests, Strickers Crombie from Capricraft and Redemir from Mark, who's portfolio manager of the Fairtree Global Smart Beta Fund. Thank you for watching. I'll catch you same time, same place next week. Have a good evening.